Well, I think uh, Pastor Dave, as he was talking after that worship moment, I think he changed how I'm going to pray this week, believing that God is able to bring a February heat wave. Uh, this cold is oppressive and unholy. So if you'll pray with me, God is able, right, <laughs> to bring it above 30 below, I think, on Wednesday. That's just not right. Anyway, Alexander is uh, perhaps one of the most recognized people in, in all of world history. And from a young age, his father and those around him noticed his sort of superior intellect, his ability on the battlefield. And so his father, King Philip II, very early on trusted Alexander with high levels of responsibility and leadership. In the kingdom of Macedonia, King Philip II trusted his son Alexander by the age of 16 to be a regent for the country of Macedonia. Substantial responsibility. And his father believed in Alexander so much, there's this legend told that the Macedonian stable had a horse that was unbroken and could not be tamed. And Alexander, he, he was tenacious, he was driven, and he made it his goal to break and to tame this untamable horse. And his father watched his determination and watched as Alexander conquered and tamed this horse. And his father said what seems to be prophetic words. He said, Alexander, he said, you need to find a kingdom worthy of your greatness because Macedonia is far too small for you. Alexander the Great, as the, as the Roman Empire would later call him, went on to conquer much of the known Eastern world of that time. And, and he, he was so good as a military strategist that at one point he's facing the Persian army of King Darius, and they had 40,000 troops, some scholars suggest, compared to Alexander's 20,000, outnumbered two to one, and yet Alexander the Great still managed to get the victory. But all was not totally well. Plutarch, the, the Greek biographer and historian would say that Alexander the Great behind the scenes was a little bit impulsive. He could be a rash decision maker, and he was prone to outbursts of anger. Several historians would tell you that as Alexander got a taste for victory, he was driven for more and more conquest. He had to conquer. After all, his father had spoken those words, Alexander, you're great. You need to find the kingdom worthy of your greatness. And Alexander is, is said to have made this statement that for a person of ability, there's no limit to what they can do. I mean, what, what a prideful statement, right? That Alexander says, there's almost limitless possibility for me. And so we set out to conquer more and more and more. And in that taste for more victory and more conquering, several historians have said that rather than leading with moderation, he began to lead with a sort of reckless abandon after conquest. Later, towards the end of his life, one historian suggested that Alexander the Great fell into sort of a, a megalomania, an obsession with power, and he began to silence critics, even among his advisors, and so he would shut down wise counsel, because after all, he was one of the greatest leaders of all time. Who, who would push back on his rule and on his reign? Sadly, after Alexander the Great died, most of his empire would be carved up by the generals who came after him, because in his pride, Alexander the Great paid little attention to governance. He wanted more and more territory. He didn't have time to worry about who was going to run things. Alexander was driven for more and more territory. He gave no thought to who would lead after him. All his, he was concerned about was making his name great and building his empire. And after his death, it almost all came to nothing. 
Because in his pride, he was driven after gaining material and gaining wealth and gaining position for himself. But his pride proved to be his downfall. And, and I think this, this idea of pride and the dangers of pride are, are fundamentally important for us. And, and we could say, well, it, it's easy to look at Alexander the Great. Like he had all this, the trappings of power and he had, he had all of this stuff at his disposal. Like we can see how he would get into pride. Like I might be a little overconfident, but I don't know if I'd say I'm prideful, right? We want to let ourselves off the hook. But I, I found this fascinating. Psychologists have studied this, two, two psychologists by the name of Dunning and Kruger. And it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. This is a thing. You can Google it. Uh, what they said was that they found that people who were in the lowest quartile for a field of work or in a, in a task that's given to them, those who were in the lower 25%, almost all of them have the tendency to overinflate their abilities. So as they did these studies, let me just read for you um, a couple of the, the findings that they found. I thought this was fascinating. They said in one study of a high-tech firm, they said 42% of the software engineers rated their skills as being in the top 5%. 42% of them said, oh, I'm in the top 5% for sure, right? They, they did a nationwide survey and they said drivers consistently rate themselves above average. Listen, if you've driven anywhere in Brookings, right, you know this is real. Like a lot of drivers who say they're great are horrible, right? Not a thing. They said medical technicians overestimate their knowledge in real world lab procedures. And they said in a study at the faculty of the University of Nebraska, they said 68% of the faculty said that they had superior teaching abilities. They rated themselves in the top 25%. Catch that, 68% of them said, oh yeah, I'm one of the top 25% professors at this school. And they said, in fact, 90% of those same professors said they did well above average work. Again, the statistics don't work. 90% of them can't be doing above average work. Right? And there's this tendency in ourselves, I think driven by pride, to sort of overinflate who we are, to overinflate our sense of self. And so when we come this morning to a book like Obadiah, have you guys been following along with the reading plan in, in that journal, reading through the minor prophets? If you have, can, can I just say, like, as a pastor, even, man, it's, it's hard text. Like, it's, it's difficult. And my, my concern is as we're reading this text and you're, you're reading these prophecies, my concern is that we'll go, oh man, this is really hard. I don't know if I'm going to stick with it. And I think we do that to our detriment because I find it fascinating this morning when we get to the book of Obadiah, Obadiah starts talking about this, this idea of pride and how big of an issue pride was for the country of Edom. And I'm reading Obadiah this week and I'm like, man, he wrote hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and what he's saying is still so incredibly applicable today. And, and so my, my fear is that we'll read something like Obadiah, and it's hard, and we go, ah, I'm just going to move on to something. Let's, let's go to Psalms. That's better, right? And, and I think we do that to our harm because Obadiah has some fundamentally important things to offer us. So I want to read part of Obadiah, but before I do, let, let me set up what's happening in the prophetic, prophetic word of Obadiah. Historically, if you think back to when God made a covenant with the people of Israel, he makes this covenant with Abraham. He says, through you, I'm going to bless all nations. And after Abraham, there's Isaac, who's one of the patriarchs of the faith. And Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Esau is the firstborn. And as the firstborn, he has the right to the inheritance. He has the right to his father's blessing. Now, Jacob, the little deceiver, right? He's cunning. 
you have a little brother or a younger sibling, you know how sneaky they can be, right? So Jacob gets this plan and he decides, I'm going to steal my brother Esau's blessing. I'm going to steal the inheritance. I'm going to take it for myself. And so he concocts this plan and he unfolds it and he ends up, his father who can't see very well, ends up blessing Jacob instead of Esau. Now, if you also have siblings, you know that sibling rivalry is very real, right? You ever had those moments where you're in competition with your siblings and it might start as fun, but it gets real, real fast, right? I've seen a few flipped Monopoly boards in my day. Not for me, for my brothers. They're poor losers. I'm, if they're watching on the live stream, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it gets real. And so what, what's happening is now in the book of Obadiah, you're going to see these two words interchanged. The country of Edom are, are the descendants of Esau. And so at times, Obadiah is going to call Edom their, by their country name, the Edomites. At other times, he's going to call them Esau because the Edomites are descendants of Esau. Now, on the other side of this, you have Israel and Judah, descendants of Jacob, and that sibling rivalry that started all the way back then comes to a head again in the book of Obadiah. And so what happened is the the nation of Babylon has attacked and invaded Judah, who are descendants of the Edomites. You tracking with me? The Edomites are over here, and they watch what happens to the nation of Judah, to Jacob's descendants, and they basically stand at a distance and go, that's really too bad. And and they, they don't help. They don't offer any aid. And in fact, as we read Obadiah, you'll see that the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, they start to take advantage in this moment of adversity. They start to take advantage of the people of Judah. And Obadiah speaks a prophetic word into the midst of this place of conflict. Would you follow along with me in Obadiah? Beginning in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let it go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations, and you will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down? Though you soar like the eagle and you make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged, all your allies will force you to the border, your friends will deceive you and overpower you, those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Timon, will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter." Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be destroyed forever. On that day, you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were just like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster. Don't gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster. Don't seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. That sibling rivalry come to a head again. 
Judah is in a place of trouble, and Edom decides to stand off, and they're not going to help. But not only are they not going to help, they're going to take advantage of the situation. And in this moment, Obadiah speaks prophetically, and he speaks very pointedly into the nation of Edom, and he begins to identify their core problem. And he points it out in verse 3, and I think this is fundamental. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. The core problem for the people of Edom is that they are deceived by their own pride. And as I read this text this week, I literally had to set down my Bible and like set back for a minute and think about this. I mean, I I feel like I've thought a lot about pride, but I hadn't thought a lot about how pride can be deceptive. And, And I found it fascinating that he tells Edom, the descendants of Esau, he says, in your heart, the pride of your heart is a deceptive influence in your life. And so I started asking myself this question as I read Obadiah, how is pride deceiving? Have you ever thought about it that way, that pride is a deceptive, lying influence in your life? Have you ever thought about it like that? So I found myself asking, how is pride deceptive? And there's at least three ways that I see in the text that pride can be deceptive. The first is this. Pride can be deceptive when it creates a belief in our own self-sufficiency. Pride has this tendency for me to say, I've got this. I've got it figured out. I've got things under control. I've got a plan. I'm doing good. The the only problem is that's deceptive because we are not made or created to do life on our own fully self-sufficient. We're created to be in relationship with God. We're created to be in relationship and community with other people. We are not meant to live life self-sufficient. I I love the way that Psalm chapter 10 verse 4 says this. In Psalm 10 verse, verse 4, the psalmist says it this way. He said, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. He's talking about God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. I mean, talk about deception. The prideful person, the psalmist says, the prideful person says, I I don't, I don't really need God. I'm doing pretty good. I've got things figured out. I'm doing okay. So, so let me ask you this question. Where in your life are you believing the lie that you are more competent and capable than God himself of running your life? Where are you believing the lie that you are more competent and capable than God himself to steward your own life? Now, this is church, so the the right Sunday school answer is to say, well, nowhere. Like, obviously, God's able, right? We're saying about that, of course. So let me ask the question this way. What's an area of your life that you won't trust God with? Maybe it's your finances, financially, you're saying, okay, I'm going to steward finances in the way that I feel like I should. I've got this figured out. And God says, what about this tithing thing? And you're like, shh, I didn't hear that. I've got this. Maybe, maybe it's relationships. Maybe there's a relationship that God says, I want you to reconcile this. And you're like, mm, not going to happen. I don't, I don't want to reconcile with that person. And God says, yeah, but I'm a reconciler by nature. I want you to reconcile with that person. And we say, God, you don't have access to this. I'm going to withhold that and keep it independent of you. Or maybe, maybe it's, it's your future plan. As a college student or as, as a young adult, you, you've said, I know the plan. I'm, I'm going to pursue business. I know what I'm going to do. And I've got it all figured out. And God says, uh, how, about, how about you submit that and surrender it to me? And we tell God, uh, thanks for asking, but no thanks. I would prefer to actually keep this under my control. And, and the lie in that we're, we're believing in that moment is that I know better about that area of my life than he does. 
If we believed that God was actually more capable and actually had our best interest at heart, wouldn't we surrender that to him? But pride can be deceiving because it whispers in our ear, you know better, you can do this on your own. And it causes us to live in a place where we're focused on our own self-sufficiency. And the people of Edom do this. Did you catch that, that phrase in verse three? They say, who can cut us down? We've got this. In the nation of Edom, actually Judah was in a rather flat area, but Edom, they, they had a, a, a strategic position in, in a very mountainous area where there were steep cliffs. It was hard to, to attack Edom. And so Edom goes, we've got this great fortified position up in the mountains. Y'all can't touch us. They think they've got it figured out. They're self-deceived in their own sense of self-sufficiency. The second place, though, that I see pride uh, being deceptive is that pride causes us to underestimate our faults and our blind spots. Pride would have us believe that we have it all together. Pride would have us believe that we don't have any blind spots, that we've taken everything into account. But even for the people of Edom, there's fundamental things that they're missing. They've told God, we don't really need you. We've got it figured out. No one can touch us. But in verse 6 and 7, God says, listen, he says, Edom or Esau will be ransacked. Your hidden treasures are going to be taken from you. And he says, verse 7, he says, your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive you and overpower you. At the end of verse 7, he says, but you will not detect it. Ooh. So Edom, these people who said, no one can touch us, no one can cut us down. God says, actually, there's fundamental things you're blind to, and your friends and allies, the very people that you trusted, they're going to be the ones who ransack you, and you're blind to it and don't see it because in your pride, you think you've got it all together. That doesn't describe any of us, does it? All right, sign me up first. That it's easy in our pride to think, I've got it together, I don't... My faults and flaws aren't that bad. And then we do the comparison thing. They're for sure not as bad as that person. Look at them. Wow. They're messed up. And I'm pretty together, right? That comparison is a prideful thing. The third way that I see pride being deceptive in the life of the people of Edom is that it causes them to believe that the world revolves around them. For the people of Edom, they're saying, everything is, is about us. And I love, I sometimes think, the prophets maybe had fun, maybe got a little bit sarcastic with the way that they approached things. So I read it this way a little bit. I thought verse four was fascinating, right? So Obadiah, he's, he's bringing this prophetic word to Edom and he goes, oh, Edom, verse four, you who soar like the eagles and you make your nest among the stars. Like, oh, you guys are, you guys are so great. You're, you're soaring with eagles. You're majestic just like they are. Oh, you're making your, your nest all among the stars. You guys are awesome. And so Edom has this idea that the world revolves around them. And so when Judah falls into trouble, Edom goes, yeah, maybe we could carry off some of the plunder for ourselves. I mean, the world revolves around us, doesn't it? So, so let me draw this out because I think this will help make sense to us. When we live and walk in a prideful disposition, what happens is I put me at the center of everything. I become the focus of my own world. Now, there's other important relationships and people that are part of our lives. So you might have a spouse. You might have a relationship with God. You attend church. Maybe you have kids. You've got a job. You've got friends. Now, a prideful disposition, what it does is it asks the question, how can my spouse serve me? How can God 
serve me? How can my church serve me? How can my kids serve me? How can my job serve me? How can my friends serve me? And so what this looks like is, let's, let's say with our spouse, because this is one I encounter all the time. Couples who are in a place of conflict, and they're both in a sort of a standoff with guns pointed at each other saying, they don't serve me. And the other person's going, yeah, well, they don't serve me. And sometimes people enter marriage with this broken expectation that their spouse is the one that's going to bring them contentment and fulfillment and happiness. And so two broken people enter marriage going, how can you serve me? But the problem is, in this way, it's all focused on me. The question isn't, how can I serve my spouse? It's what can they do for me? I think we do something similar with God, too. We want to live our life and say, God, how can you serve my agenda? How can you do what I want to do? And church, we for sure do this with church, right? Was the sermon good? Am I being fed? Is the music my preference? All of those things were about church serving me. And, and I think we, we for sure do this with friendships. We, we sort of keep a tally of, well, they invited me over this time, and they shared that Facebook status. Um, so I think, right, and we sort of have this, this comparison and this, this tally sheet of keeping score of who's done what. But the problem is, this is a prideful way to live, and, and I think this way of living is fundamentally opposed to how God has called us to live. You see, what happens when we look at encountering the gospel, right, the good news of Jesus Christ, when you encounter the gospel, there's something transformative that happens. So that Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Paul says something like this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I have been put to death and I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. And when we encounter the gospel, we realize that I am not at the center of this thing. We realize that the center of our life is Jesus. And I live and serve under his lordship. You see, pride, I think, is really a lordship issue because what pride does says, I can be the Lord of my own life. The gospel says we serve a Savior who was crucified for us and he invites you to die with him to yourself. And what happens, you still have these same elements. You have a spouse and you have a relationship with God and, and you have kids and you have friends. You have those same elements in your life, but now your life is fundamentally oriented in a new direction. Suddenly you ask, how can I serve my spouse? Suddenly you ask, what is God calling me to? How can I serve my kids? How can I serve my friends? How can I pour my life out for other people? And, and here's the mind-boggling thing. When we live how God called us to live, when you start to serve your spouse, suddenly they go, there's something different. And it opens up the capacity for your spouse to serve you in return, but we have to lead the way. And, and here's what I think is crazy is as they start to notice something different, as they look back at you, they don't see you. They begin to see the influence of Jesus in your life. And Jesus is the one who begins to get the glory in your life. But we have to recognize that the message of the gospel is that we have, are to die to self, rise to new life in Christ, and live as different people under the lordship of Jesus. That you are not to be the Lord of your own life. And this is what Edom just simply couldn't get. And, and we see the symptoms of their pride all over the place. As the, as the story of Edom unfolds in verses 11 through 14, uh, Obadiah says, here's the symptoms of your pride. Here's what I see. And in verse 11, he says, on that day you stood aloof. 
He's talking about the day when Judah was invaded and oppressed by Babylon. He said, you stood aloof. And so one of the symptoms of their pride is that they are disengaged from the suffering of others. It's like Edom said, that's too bad. I'm going to go over here where I don't have to look at your suffering. The second symptom that we see is that they actually boast over the misfortune of others. Did you notice how many times Obadiah said, don't gloat? In verses 11 through 14, don't gloat over their misfortune. So not only are they disengaged from suffering, but they boast over this, their misfortune. Then they begin to use the adversity of, the, of others to their self-advantage. In verse 14, it says, um, or verse 13, sorry, it says, in the day of disaster, don't seize their wealth. Edom was planning, how can we go over there and take what's theirs and make it ours? And the fourth symptom of their pride is that they begin to adopt this sort of oppressive stance towards the people of Judah. And they begin to, to have an aggressive posture, a, toward a, a sort of warlike posture towards these people who are their distant relatives. And Obadiah says, these are symptoms of your pride. And, and, and it could be easy to look at that list of symptoms and say, well, that's a bit extreme. Right? Those are the people of Edom. That's a bit extreme. Like, I'm not standing disengaged from the suffering of others. I'm not one who's gloating over the misfortune of others. But I think if we look deeper, we'll realize that a lot of these same symptoms of pride manifest in ourselves. I think a lot of times we do have a tendency when we see the suffering of another, we say, I'm sorry, my thoughts and prayers are with you, but I don't really want to get involved because I don't want it to affect me. Or how many times do we look at, think about this, why, why are tabloids a thing, right? You stand in the grocery store and they, they love, tabloids love these stories about celebrities who don't have their life together. And I think sometimes there's this sort of tendency where we see a famous person who has a failure or we see a religious leader who has a moral falling and somewhere deep inside we're like, see, I knew they weren't better than me. I knew that they didn't have it figured out. I knew that I'm just as good as they are. And sometimes we get a little bit more joy than we should out of watching someone else fail. Let me ask you this question. Are you willing and able to celebrate well the successes of another? I think sometimes this is what it manifests itself as for us. When your neighbor buys that new boat that's awesome, can you celebrate that? When, when your, your coworker gets that promotion, you were both kind of gunning for it, but they get it. Can you celebrate it well? Or in the back of your mind, are you like, Dunning-Kruger effect, that dude's in the bottom 25%. I'm great. Is, is your tendency to mentally tear that person down? Or can you enter in a genuine moment of celebration and say, you know what? I'm legitimately really happy for you. Because I think if we'll, if we'll stop and take a look at it, we'll see that these same symptoms of pride manifest themselves in our lives in a, maybe a slightly different way. So in the midst of Edom's pride, God begins to respond. And as you read the book of Obadiah, you will find that God responds in two ways to Edom's pride. He responds with discipline and he responds with judgment. And if you're reading along in the Minor Prophets, are you noticing a theme that discipline and judgment are like a prominent theme in the prophets? And maybe you're like me, you read it and you're like, man, this is getting heavy. But part of what I want us to see this morning is that God, as God responds to the nation of Edom with discipline, discipline is not a negative thing. I think as we watch how God responds to Edom, we'll see that discipline is actually a gracious intervention of God 
in our lives to correct disobedience or wrong disposition. That Revelation 3.19, it's there. It says, the Lord disciplines those he loves. So because God loves Edom, God is willing to bring discipline. And here's the truth that I want us to grasp this morning. God brings discipline now so we can avoid disaster later. Did you catch that? God brings discipline now so we can avoid disaster later. And this, this works with parenting, by the way. The reason I tell my kids no is not because I'm a fun hater. Although sometimes my wife would say I am a fun hater, but it's not true. So don't believe that. The reason I discipline my kids is not because I want to spoil their joy or spoil their fun. It's because things that are cute when they're two and three become disastrous character traits when they're 14, 15, 16. And church, side tangent, if you don't bring discipline now, you are not setting up your kids for success later. You are crippling them because they won't understand good boundaries and won't have the structure that they need to function well. And just as it works with parenting, God does with us. He brings discipline and boundary now to save us from disaster later because this sort of prideful way of living ultimately self-implodes. So God brings discipline to Edom. Uh, let, let me read this out of Hebrews 12. Maybe you don't believe me yet that discipline is a good thing. Hebrews 12, 11 says it this way. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Amen to that, right? Discipline's not great. We don't love it. It seems painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. I love what the writer of, of Hebrews says. He says, discipline is really this gracious act of God in your life that yields a harvest of right living and yields a harvest of peace. And so when God brings discipline, what he's doing is correcting his children to bring us back to a place of right living where we truly experience peace and flourish, flourishing. So God brings discipline in Edom's life in three ways. The first way that God brings discipline is he removes their influence. If you look at verse 2, God tells Edom, you will be small and you will be despised. So Edom, who in the one hand is like, yo, we soar with eagles, we make our nests in the stars. God says, yep, but a time is coming when people will be like, Edom, ooh, that, that place? We don't talk about them. We don't care about them. God is going to remove their influence because of their pride. The second way that we see God bringing discipline is that God removes their means of being self-sufficient. Did you notice in verses five through seven that God says, listen, you're going to experience a time when you're ransacked and people are going to carry off your plunder. And he specifically mentions, he says, if grape pickers come, aren't they going to take what they want? And he says, you're going to be pillaged. And we look at that and we're like, grapes. So they're not going to have grape juice? Like, what's the big deal? But for the people of Edom, they were not agriculturally rich. The grape harvest was one of their primary sources of economic viability. So when God says, listen, this grape harvest that you think is so great, that's going to be plundered and taken from you. And so God begins to remove their means of being self-sufficient. And finally, God removes their sources of strength and pride. If you read verses 8 through 9, you'll see that God says two things. He says, your wise men will be destroyed and your warriors will be terrified. Now, as a nation, when your warriors are terrified, that places you in a position of vulnerability. And what God does is in an act of discipline, he begins to strip away the things that they have put their hope, trust, and success in. All the things that they can rely on to be self-sufficient, God begins to peel those things back. And here's what I think is true for us, is that discipline can create a climate 
in which humility and submission can be cultivated. Because in our pride, when I think it's all about me and I think I'm pretty self-sufficient and I think I'm pretty good and I think I've got it going on, it's hard for me to receive truth in this place. It's hard for me when I'm living here to be humble and to be teachable. And sometimes in an act of discipline, God has to say, what's the source of your pride? Oh, your job and your title? What if I take that from you? And suddenly we find ourselves in a place where we're wrestling with identity because we'd rooted it in things like our reputation and what we do and how much stuff we have. And so when those things disappear, it leaves us much more desperate than we should have. But sometimes in an act of discipline, God removes those things to bring us to a place in which humility and submission can be cultivated in our life. And the reason this is so important is because in this place, where we are living self-sufficient from God, if we don't respond to God's discipline, we open ourselves up to God's judgment. And God's judgment, and when you read the Old Testament, God's judgment for the people of God was never a negative thing. We see judgment and we're like, oh, I don't like judgment. That sounds so harsh. But for the people of God, judgment was always a good thing because in God's judgment, God says no to injustice and no to evil and no to suffering. And in judgment, God sets all things right and says yes to justice and to righteousness. The problem is when we live in a prideful disposition, we open ourselves up to God's judgment because we're living in a way that is fundamentally opposed to how God has called us to live in relationship with himself. And the promise of God's judgment is that God will establish his plan and his purpose. And God's plan and God's purpose is to live in relationship with us. But when we are living in a place of pride, we've told God, no thanks, I'm good, I've got this. So where is pride present in your life? I know it's still present in my mind and in my life. As I was reading Obadiah this week, when when I first opened the text, I was like, man, this is tough. As I kept reading, I was like, this is a bit personal, Obadiah. I want you back off, right? I'll worry about my own pride. And I felt like the Spirit of God just kept pushing into some areas. Like, what about pride? Where have you been self-deceived? So I want want to leave you this week with with five reflection questions. I want you to think through these. Where is pride present in your life? Where are you living with that self-sufficient mentality? Number two, is God using someone or something as an instrument of humility in your life? Maybe you have a boss at work who's just really difficult and you're annoyed because my boss is difficult for me. And maybe God's saying, what what if you can learn to serve your boss? And you're like, yeah, but they're annoying and they're difficult and they always think that person's the greatest and they always pick on me and I'm annoyed because they don't like me. And God says, yeah, but what if you could serve them? Three, where are you living in self-reliance? What's a place in your life that you've told God, hands off, I've got that, I'll take care of it? And God says, yeah, but I want to talk about that. And you've said, no, 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 thanks, I'm good. I promise you that you will continue to feel God's conviction pushing into that place, or you will encounter and develop a deafness to the voice of God because you don't want to hear it. Number four, can I trust that God is strong, competent, and capable of directing my life? Can you really trust that? Do you really believe that? And finally, who am I investing in and who am I giving away influence to? I think this is fundamentally important because so many times, especially in this area of what we do, 
We're, we're vying for status and we're vying for authority and influence. We want a seat at the table where decisions happen and, and we, we crave that. And then when we get it, we want to hold on to it with tight-fisted hands. But it, that's a prideful position. I think what God wants us to do is to turn and to serve and invest in others. So I, I encourage you, I, keep the note guide. If you didn't take notes, I don't care, but grab those reflection questions and really wrestle with those in an earnest way this week. Really do some soul searching to ask God about where pride is present and what these elements look like in your life. Because I think when we live how God has called us to live, we experience a beauty and a depth and a fullness that's so much better than living in pride. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Um, It's amazing that Obadiah, speaking hundreds and hundreds of years ago, can say things that are so applicable today. And God, it's so easy to be deceived by the pride of our heart and to live out of places of, of untruth. God, it's easy to live with this lie that we've got it figured out, that we don't need you. But God, I pray that as we walk in pride, as you bring discipline into our lives, God, I pray that we would be open and receptive to your discipline, recognizing that you don't bring discipline because you want to ruin our fun, but you bring discipline so that we can walk, as as Hebrews says, in righteousness with a harvest of peace. God, that's what we want, to walk with you in peace. So God, I pray this week that we would take those questions seriously and that we would probe down deep to look at where pride is still present and know that where it's present, God, your grace will help us to live in a place of self-sacrifice and of trust in you, Jesus. Father, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.